0: Hey, welcome to another exciting adventure of Church on the Beach. Today we've got Genesis 28, 20 through 22. This is entitled, uh, Our Christian Offering. Have you been lied to about tithing? All right, so uh, let me go ahead and read you the sermon text for today. It's only three verses. It's uh, Genesis 28, starting in the 20th verse. It says, Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give the 10th to you. Today, I'm gonna to speak about a subject which is one of the most abused and misapplied topics in all of Christianity. Church people are filled with a misunderstanding of it because leaders either willingly or negligently pass on error. Personally, and I have to tell you this, this is one of the issues that gets me more upset than almost any other, and it is one that has led me to stop listening to some of what I used to consider some of the best preachers in America, simply because if they cannot handle this particular issue properly, then they cannot, in my opinion, be trusted to handle any other issue properly either. The subject is tithing. And today, you're gonna hear directly from the Bible what tithing is and how it was, past tense, to be applied. I hope, I trust, and I pray that you will listen carefully and then act properly and without coercion in your Christian, Christian giving in the future. Our text verse for today comes from Galatians chapter two. It's the 21st verse. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law then christ died in vain tithing is a concept which was mandated under the law if we believe that we can somehow attain righteousness by adhering to this precept or any other precept found under the law then we have a fundamentally flawed view of our relationship with god paul says that if righteousness comes through the law then christ died in vain What would be the point of Jesus coming if we could merit God's favor apart from Jesus? It's wrong thinking, but this is what churches are full of, especially when it comes to this particular precept, which is found only under the law and which is known as tithing. Let us stand on the righteousness that comes not from our deeds, but the righteousness which comes from God through His Son, our Lord and Savior. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. We have two thoughts today. Let me put this down. The first thought is Christ, our provision. All right, he's our provider. He's our provision. Last week, we saw that Jacob had a dream in Bethel where the Lord stood above a ladder and spoke to him. When he did, he said this to Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now that he's awake and he's ready to continue on his journey, Jacob utters a vow of promise to the Lord, which is verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. The statement here, if God will be with me would rightly be stated since God will be with me. Jacob is not doubting what the Lord said. Instead, he has every reason to believe that he would be with him, just as the vision indicated. In essence, since I know that this is so, and he will keep me in the way which I go and will meet all my needs, thus will follow my righteous deeds. This is Jacob's thought to us. Verse 21, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. In the previous verse, Jacob said, "'If God will be with me.'" Now he says, "'Then the Lord shall be my God.'" We have to look all the way back to the beginning of the vision when Jacob lay down to sleep to understand this. There it said, "'Then he dreamed, and behold, "'a ladder was set up on the earth, "'and its top reached to heaven. "'And there the angels of God "'were ascending and descending on it. "'And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, "'I am the Lord God of Abraham your father "'and the God of Isaac.'" The land in which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. The Lord identified himself to Jacob in the vision, but Jacob already knew about the Lord from the past, including the blessing which his father uh, bestowed upon him before he left. So we know that Jacob is not saying here that if God will do these things, that he will accept the Lord as his God. That's already the case. What he is saying is that he will be all the more eager and willing to serve the Lord. As I said, the previous verse gives the idea, since God will be with me. Because God will be with him, he says, the Lord will be my God. Now to help you understand this, we could use two friends as an example. One is going on an adventure trip and the other has a lot of money and he has a lot of resources and he promises to help out his friend while he's out on his trip. The one heading out says, since you will be with me and have ensured that I'll be taken care of, you will certainly be my friend. They're already friends, but what he is saying is in a manner which indicates not just friendly friendship, but helping friendship as well. Jacob is now saying the same about the Lord. Since you will be with me, you will be the Lord to me. And now we can see our relationship with Jesus in this as well. The book of Hebrews quoting the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our reply of confirmation would be, since you will never leave me nor forsake me, You will be the Lord to me indeed. We're not saying that something isn't already true. We're saying that something is true in an absolutely certain way. It is an act of gratitude from our lips and it is the same from Jacob's lips to the Lord in this particular verse. And now gracious we should be or grateful we should be since you will never leave me nor will I be left as forsaken. To you all glory and honor and praises be and in you, my peace and rest is taken. And that leads to our second thought today, which is Christ, our reward. He's our provision. He's also our reward. Verse 22, and this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. Now, if you missed the symbolism of the ladder, the stone and everything else in Jacob's vision in last week's sermon, it would be good for you to go back and watch that. The stone is a picture of Christ. He is the pillar of God's house. He is the foundation of God's house. He's the cornerstone of God's house and he's the capstone of God's house. Jacob is going to be back someday to fulfill his vow. We will see his words realized in Genesis 35. Here's what it says in Genesis 35. So Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel. Right now he's in Bethel. He's about to go to Padanaram. Aram. 20 years later, he comes right back to the same place, which is in the land of Canaan he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Just as he spoke the vow, he fulfilled the vow. A vow is a solemn oath made by an individual and the Lord looks at these things as binding. When we make a promise, we are to keep our promise. When we make an oath, we're to keep our oath. When we sign a contract, we need to fulfill the requirements of the contract we've signed. Now, making a vow and performing it is something that human beings have had a very difficult thing doing throughout history, but it is something that the Lord asks us to do. In the 50th Psalm, David says these words, offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. Then in the 76th Psalm, Asaph tells us the same thing. He says, make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. And even in the 66 Psalm, we see words which almost reflect Jacob's state right now in Genesis. It says there, I will go to your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Jacob's in trouble right now. His brothers said he's gonna kill him, so he's fleeing off to Padanaram. Aram. He makes a vow, he's spoken it, his lips have uttered it, and so he pays his vows when he returns in Genesis 35. He even says here in the Psalms, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. And that's what Jacob is doing on his way back through Bethel. So you can see how it's being mirrored, what Jacob did in the Psalms. A vow is something that is offered by our free will. And therefore it is something that is not required. By making a vow, we are giving our word. If our vows mean nothing, then our words mean nothing and they can't be trusted. And I gotta tell you what, there is nothing less exciting than being around someone who can't be trusted. Each one of us has made vows and surely each one of us has failed in those vows. But past failure is no indication of future results. So what we need to do is to do our utmost to determine before others and especially before God that we will stand by our words and be counted as trustworthy people. All right, verse 22 continues. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a 10th to you. Jacob now vows a 10th of what the Lord gives him back to the Lord. Notice though, it doesn't say how the 10th is going to be given and the Lord does not use money. Therefore, the discretion for the giving is left up to Jacob. Will will he give a 10th for maybe taking care of the poor or is he gonna give a 10th for building and taking care of an altar? Is he gonna throw a big party for his family and rejoice in the blessings of the Lord with songs and praise? It doesn't say, and there is no indication later what he did. The promise is made and nothing else is stated. And this is very important, and we cannot skip over this fact. Also, what is equally important is that these verses are what we would call descriptive. They are not prescriptive. They describe what happened but they in no way prescribe to us something that we are required to do. Now, the first time that giving, a tenth, is noted in the Bible was back in Genesis 14 when Abraham slaughtered the four kings of the east. He came back into the land and he was down around the area of Salem. He met a man named Melchizedek and here's what it says. It says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, meaning Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe or a tenth of all. This account of Abraham is, just like the account with Jacob, descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It describes to us what happened, but it in no way prescribes that we are to do the same. Now, this is the first time that I have ever brought up Christian giving in any real sense in any sermon that I know of. I've spoken about it in Bible studies. I have a page dedicated to it on my website, but now I'm going to preach on it, and I would really, really hope that you will pay attention closely. My first point for you is something that either you weren't listening to or that possibly you just misunderstood earlier when I said it. We are not under the law of Moses. In fact, the New Testament says often, and it says explicitly, that the law is set aside in Christ. It is obsolete, it is done, it is finished. We cannot insert the Old Testament into the New Testament Christian living without inserting heresy. It's that simple. We are, as the Bible tells us, living in the dispensation of grace Now, I'm going to cite several verses from throughout the New Testament to give you a small taste of this, but I could cite many, many more. We'll start in uh, John chapter 1, where it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law versus grace. And then we go to Romans 5. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Romans 6. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then we go to Galatians 2.21. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That was our text verse for today. It's a repetition of what we need to know. Going on to Galatians chapter 5, it says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law for you have fallen from grace. And then we come to Hebrews chapter seven. In the book of Hebrews, it says explicitly three times that the law is done. Here's one of them. It says, for on the one hand, there is an annulling, annulling means to make void or to end or to make obsolete. There is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That is the grace of Jesus Christ. I could cite many, many more verses, but the Bible is clear. In Jesus, the law is set aside. If we attempt to be justified by the law, meaning living out deeds of the law to please God, then we have fallen from the very grace which was bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. Just as it should be, we are to hold to salvation by grace by grace of Jesus and by his mercy and not through deeds of the law this is what brings salvation this is what preachers all around America will preach week after week after week again and again and again and again and yet when it comes to money all of this grace is thrown to the wind and the law almost Im- inevitably gets reintroduced One of the most common Bible quotes that you will hear on the subject of giving is Malachi 3, verse 8. Here's what it says. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And God's divine answer, in tithes and offerings. After hearing this, in a New Testament church, you're going to be given an hour sermon on how you've been stealing from God if you don't give 10%, just as the Bible says, and make it pre-tax because if you don't, you know, taxes just don't count. So you're made to feel guilty. You're made to feel shamed about it. And if you don't follow through with what they tell you, then of course you're not a very good Christian. Never mind that Malachi was written when? It was written under the law. The concept of tithing is mentioned in only two contexts in the New Testament. The first was Jesus speaking under the law. Now let's get this straight. Everything that Jesus did, every word that he spoke, everything that happened in his life happened under the law. Even though it's recorded in the New Testament, until the night of the Last Supper, when he instituted the new covenant, he was fulfilling the law for us. That's the purpose of the Gospels, is to show us the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. So everything he said was under the law. And when he spoke about tithing, it was to the scribes and Pharisees about the wrong intent of their tithes. These can be found in Matthew 23, in Luke 11, and in Luke chapter 18. The second time that tithing is mentioned in any context in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter seven, which is the verses that I just cited about the law being an alt. It is merely using the giving of tithes under the Old Testament to demonstrate the greatness of Melchizedek, not as any sort of requirement. Having said this, you now know that tithing is not in any way a New Testament concept. It was a practice that was given specifically to the people of Israel and to them alone. It is like the rest of the law set aside in Christ. Does everybody follow so far? Do you understand what I'm saying? All right. But I want you to do something. I want you to understand what tithing was from the Old Testament itself so that you are never duped again by preachers who would so mishandle the Bible. And the reason why I say that is because people will say, yeah, tithing is out because of the law, but I still believe that you should be giving because that kind of sets the precedence of 10%. Well, let's see what the law actually says about tithing. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna quote you directly from the Bible. Listen carefully as I do. I'm gonna stop from time to time and I'll give you some explanation of what's being said. But I want you to remember, I did not write these verses. God did through Moses and they are right in your Bible, okay? So get your Bible out and follow along if you want to. The first one comes from Leviticus chapter 27. It explains what a tithing is. It is 10% of everything that comes from the land, but it doesn't describe the what of the tithe or the when of the tithe. It just describes what it is, okay? I'm going to read it to you now. And all the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord okay? It's an agrarian society. They grow crops and they have herds, all right? And that's where they get their money from. America used to be an industrial society. Now we're kind of a service oriented society, but we get our money through wages. They got their money through actually growing their own produce, okay? Verse 31, if a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one fifth to it. So if he has a bag of especially good grain and he wants to buy it back, The Lord gives him the provision of buying that grain back and he just adds a fifth of the value to it and that becomes holy to the Lord, okay? And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, of whatever passes under the rod. Here's the shepherd, he's got a rod and all the animals go under it and he counts them. And as he counts them, it says, the 10th one shall be holy to the Lord. That is the holy tithe. It doesn't say what to do with it. It doesn't say when to do with it. It just simply describes that this is the tithe, okay? In Numbers 18, it begins to explain what was to be done with the ties it says there that the levites are given the ties in israel for the work that they perform the levites are like ministers they're in all the towns of israel and they're telling people what to do and they're acting as judges and ministers in that explanation it says this for the ties of the children of israel which they offer up as a heave offering to the lord so it's not all the ties it's a certain portion of the ties The tithes which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. The Levites are not given land. They're not required to go out and grow crops. They get their sustenance from the people of the land. Okay. After this, the Levites have received their portion of the tithe. They are to offer up their own heave offering from that and take a 10% out of that to give to the priests, which is a different class in Israel. Here's what it says. Thus you shall also have a heave offering, speaking to the Levites, to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from the children of Israel, and you shall give the Lord's heave offering from it to Aaron the priest. The people of Israel give 10% a heave offering. That goes to the Levites. The Levites then take 10% of that and give it to the priests. This is very clear. And I'm sure that any preacher would use it to justify his stand to tell you that you should be giving them a 10th of what you make. Okay, but the silence becomes deafening when we get to Deuteronomy. There we will see the entire picture of what the tithe meant within the nation of Israel. Now understand Deuteronomy is the instructions for the people before they enter the promised land. The law is given, but... uh, the definitive instructions they're not in the promised land yet and so what it is is it's basically god saying if you do these things i will bless you if you don't do these things i will curse you now go over the jordan subdue the land and take over your property and start growing and and doing the things that i ask you okay that is what deuteronomy is for it is the instructions for the people throughout the old testament period here's what it says but when you cross over the jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. Remember, they went over the Jordan and they had to push out all of the people that were living in the land. These people were committing abominations and the Lord says, get rid of them. Get them out of the land and this land will now become yours. All right, it took seven years for them to do that. During those seven years, they're not growing their own crops and they're not, you know, tending to herds. Instead, they're in battle. So when They've gone over the Jordan, and after they've been given safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Okay, that means wherever the tabernacle is or the temple, that is where the Lord God has chosen for his name to abide. For many, many, many years, it was in a place called Shiloh. You might call it Shiloh. It's pronounced Shiloh. Later, it moved to Jerusalem. Okay, that's where the tabernacle is. That's where he's talking about. There you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand and all your choice offerings, which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord, your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates since he has no portion or inheritance with you. So what they're to do is they're gonna take their tithes down to this area and they're gonna take the Levite by the hand and say, come on with us and we're gonna have a party down in Jerusalem or before that it was Shiloh. Take the Levite with you and take good care of your your minister okay we're going to continue on in Deuteronomy chapter 12 a few verses down only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses and you shall offer your burnt offerings the meat and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God and you shall eat the meat That's telling us right there that all of these sacrifices that they give to the Lord, thanksgiving offerings and peace offerings and fellowship offerings and all this kind of stuff, they eat the meat of these sacrifices. Very few sacrifices did they not participate in the eating of the meat. Okay, I'm going to bring that up again later. So kind of pay attention to that and remember it when we get to it later. Now we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Okay, we're going to start in the 22nd verse. And this is the... When of the tithe. We've seen the tithe mandated, we've seen some of the what, now we are going to see the finishing portion of the what and all of the when. Pay very close attention. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Okay? Mandatory. Every year you're to tithe 10%. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. You eat your tithe. That's what the Bible says, Deuteronomy. Okay, then it says, but if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, you live way up in the north and Dan and Jerusalem's down here and it's just such a far distance, When the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take all of your crops and your herds and everything, instead of taking them to Jerusalem, sell them for money. And here's what it says to do with it. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, either Shiloh in the past or later Jerusalem. Take the money down there and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. And then he tells you some of the things for oxen or sheep for wine or similar drink. Well, the term there, wine, is yain. It means alcohol. Uh, Similar drink is the word shachar. It means very strong alcohol. You can have a party down there. It says, for whatever your heart desires. You want to buy a pretty dress for your daughter? You are not prohibited from doing that with your tithe, okay? I like the way the King James Version says this particular verse. It says, whatever thy soul lusteth after. It's kind of descriptive there. Then it continues on. You shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates. Don't forget to take your minister. He doesn't have his own stuff to give as an offering to the Lord. So you're taking him along with you. It says, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. Now listen carefully because this is the rest of the when for the tithe. At the end of every, how many fingers am I holding up? At the end of every third year, You shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands which you do. So every third year, you are to take all of the tithe and store it up in the gates of your city for the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the Levite, etc. The first two years, you take your tithe and you spend it on yourself, rejoicing in the abundance that the Lord has given you. It is an acknowledgement to the Lord of the blessings he's given you. The third year, you give it away entirely, okay? You ever heard anybody preach to you on that? My guess is no. If you have, you have a very special preacher, in my opinion. We're going to go on, though. Maybe Charlie made a mistake. Maybe Deuteronomy 14 is an aberration, and we aren't supposed to pay attention to that. Let's go to Deuteronomy 26 and get confirmation of it. It says here, when you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that you may eat within your gates, and they may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. Okay, says it twice in the Old Testament. Says something once, we wanna do it. If it says it twice, then you need to pay attention. God is telling us what to do with something. It actually says it a third time. It's in Amos four four. Now, before I read this verse, I want you to know that the Lord is rebuking the people. They're doing what they're told to do, but they're not, not doing it with the right spirit and with the right heart and the right attitude. So here's what it says. Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years okay once again three years is the tithing now a lot of translations there will say three days but the word is yamim and letting the bible translate uh the bible or interpret the bible it would be years because we have two precedents already that say the third year the word yamin can mean days or years. It certainly means years every third year. So in Deuteronomy and for the rest of the Old Testament, tithing is mandatory. But we learned that the first two years is to be spent by the one tithing and his family in the presence of the Lord for food, for drink, and for rejoicing. Only in the third year is the tithe to be given away entirely. The only additional requirement besides spending the entire tithe in a party for yourself in the presence of the Lord for those two years, is that one sentence that says, you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. This explains the verses back in Numbers 18. Okay, that's your minister, that's what he needs to live on, take care of him. This actually, though, became a means of stimulating economic growth And yet tending to the needy at the same time without any undue burden on the people. Okay? It was to remind them of the provision of the Lord and the blessings that he had given them. They take all of this produce and all of this money down to Jerusalem. They spend it in the presence of the Lord and the economy gets established. And that means there's more money within the economy. The economy grows. The needy are taken care of even outside of the tithing year because now they can work and they can do certain things. So... What is happening in America is exactly the opposite. The government is taking our money and they are giving it to the poor rather than it coming from the people and stimulating the economy. So what's happening is we are getting two classes of people, the very rich and the very poor. And this isn't because of uh, the Republicans. This is because of the democratic redistribution of wealth, which naturally leads to the economy failing. It gets away from the principles of the Bible. If you take your money and you spend it in the way that is given in the Bible, then the economy will grow and there will be less poor, not more. We have it exactly wrong in America right now. So keep that in mind that this is actually a means of stimulating the economy while taking care of the poor. Three times a year, the Bible clearly shows us that, or actually three times in the Bible, it clearly shows us that the third year is the year of giving away the tithe. Despite this, it is almost never mentioned by anyone. Instead, I know that preachers love to shame their congregations in the giving, and that from an Old Testament precept, which doesn't even apply in the New Testament anymore. But what is even more despicable, and I got to tell you, this just eats me up. There are preachers out there who actually say that the words about the third year tithe is an extra tithe, that you have to give away your 10% every year and give another 10% in the third year. And that is flat out lying. I got to tell you what, one who would presume to do this is the prime example of someone who should never be allowed to speak from the pulpit again, ever. It is greed over grace. That's exactly what this is. Imagine the nerve of standing in the pulpit and saying something like this and knowing that not one single person in your church would dare to question your authority or to even bother and go check And you wonder why week after week after week, I tell the people in the church, I tell people on the video to check their Bible, read their Bible and never trust your preacher about anything. Go check for yourself. Don't trust Charlie Garrett. You read the Bible because if not, you get led astray like this. And this just gets perpetuated because the next guy comes in and he teaches the same thing because he thinks it's right. I got to tell you what, I saw what I used to think was a highly respected, supposedly, a highly respected preacher, say exactly this one time on TV. He was saying, yeah, this is a third, this is an additional tithe in the third year. And I thought this is the most shameful display of lying that I have ever witnessed on the subject of giving in my life. I was utterly appalled when I saw this. It just, it broke my heart to think that there were thousands, he's got this giant congregation out in California, thousands of people, and then people on TV also being shamed into giving an Old Testament principle, and then being lied to on top of that. And he seems like such a sincere and honest preacher. I gotta tell you what, if you knew who I was talking about and you've probably heard of him, never watch him again. I'm not gonna give his name. We'll, we'll not try to slander him too heavily. Another ploy by preachers is to say that with the tithing, plus all of the other required sacrifices, almost 30% of what a person made in Israel would be required of given away to the Lord. Again, this is simply not correct. And that's why I showed you those verses too. Many of the required sacrifices, not all of them, but most of them, as we noted, were eaten by the one who brought them after the removal of the blood and maybe a sacred portion for the priests. These arguments that these preachers make up simply have no basis in the truth. The passages that I've shown you clearly demonstrate that the third year tithe alone was given away in its entirety and the other two years were enjoyed by the giver in the presence of the lord at jerusalem with some being taken out to take care of their levites who come from their town all right none of this matters though it doesn't matter at all because all of this comes from the law it comes from the old testament and it is over it is done with it is obsolete and it is gone so please don't ever forget this lesson today and get drawn back into the bondage of pressure and legalism now having shown you what the law states and that it doesn't even apply anymore what are we as christians to do about giving is there a rule or a guideline in the new testament the answer is yes it's found in the book of one corinthians it's chapter 16 let me read you what it says before i do let me remind you that what paul writes is doctrine for the church it is prescriptive in nature it is not descriptive in nature he's prescribing to us what we are to do Says there, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, which is Sunday, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. There you have the only real direction given to any New Testament saint lay something aside, storing up as you may prosper. So the question is, what is prospering? Guess what? It doesn't say. It is different for each individual. Have you been freed from an addiction like smoking or drugs or alcohol or maybe gambling? The money that you used to spend on those things could be given away, couldn't it? Aren't you prospering because of the change? You didn't need it for something else then. Why should you need it now? Or if you can give away just a flat 10%, then that's how the Lord has prospered you. You know, I heard on Christian radio one time about a guy who started a company and he just decided, I'm gonna give away 10% of what I make. All right, that's my my vow to the Lord. And he did. And the Lord prospered him so much that he actually now gives away 90, percent of what his company makes to the Lord. I gotta tell you what, that is a very true and a heartfelt acknowledgement that the Lord has in fact prospered him. As John Wesley states about this particular concept, the 10th, is a very fit portion to be devoted to God and employed for him. Though as circumstances vary, it may be more or less as God prospers us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul tells about the spirit of giving and the reaping which results from it. Now let me read you these verses. I need to give you an explanation because people will misuse these verses as well. But let me read it to you first. But I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Well, that's kind of obvious. If you've got an acre of uh, field and you only sow 10 feet of that acre, you're only going to reap 10 feet of what you've sown. That's it. But he says, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You've got an acre and you fill it up with grain, more grain is going to come out and you're going to reap bountifully. But you have to work for it. That's how you prosper is getting your hands dirty and getting to work. Then he goes on. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves you when you give out of a willing heart. If you're giving grudgingly or somebody says you need to give 10% or you're going to go to hell or some stupid thing like that and you're giving out of that reason, God doesn't love it. He loves it when you give cheerfully and just willingly out of a grateful heart, okay? And we don't want to misapply these particular verses that Paul's saying about sowing and reaping either. A lot of preachers do. They say, if you sow in, you're going to reap a great harvest. And they're implying if you give them $10, you're going to get $100 back. God is not an ATM machine. We cannot expect to put in and get more out. That's perverse thinking. And it's also illogical. It doesn't work that way. Our reaping may be in money. He may bless us in our business or in the work of our hands. Or it may simply be in joy from having given. Isn't that a type of reaping? If you have a job that makes $15 an hour and somebody says, you send in $1,000 to my ministry and you'll make more money, where's it gonna come from? You only make $15 an hour. It's not logical to think that way. And I gotta tell you what, people that believe what they hear, they send their money in expecting a windfall from God, they're giving with the wrong intent anyway. The, the, The very fact that they are giving in order to receive shows that their heart is not right with God. I will be as honest as I can with you. If you don't give to this ministry, and I'm talking to the church this morning about this, and on anybody on YouTube who benefits from these sermons, I have a building now as, you know, the pastor of the church. We cannot survive in that building without, with uh, expenses. We've got insurance, for example. We've got property taxes. We've got maintenance. I have a salary that I'm going to need to make in order to pay for my wife, who hopefully will retire soon. If I don't, make money in that then i'm going to be out okay that's reality and that's the same with any church if you attend a church and you don't give that pastor can't feed his family the church can't maintain itself it can't pay its bills that's reality so in support of this we would go to galatians 6 verse 6 here's what it says let him who is taught meaning anybody in the congregation or anybody who watches faithfully on youtube share in all good things with him who teaches Okay, the Lord is saying, this is your minister, help him out, support him in his ministry, all right? But when you give, when you give, may it be with a grateful heart for what you've been given and expecting nothing in return except the satisfaction that you are furthering the ministry of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for today's lesson, there's a couple things that I want you to remember. The next time somebody tells you that you're stealing from God, if you don't tithe, ask him to show you the standard for tithing in the Bible, okay? If he can find it at all, which is highly suspect, I would think, then ask him if you're under the law or if you're under grace. Finally, if he still insists on an Old Testament tithe, ask why he's not instructing you to give in the biblical fashion, which is every third year. In any case, he's trying to have his cake and he's trying to eat it at the same time. If a pastor or a teacher reads these passages that we've gone through today, which are right in your Bible, and he understands them, and he continues to instruct incorrectly. They have put their personal desire for financial gain above what the Bible instructs. I gotta tell you, no matter which way, intentional or unintentional, error in doctrine is sin. That's all there is to it. But how much more if it is done intentionally? If you're willing to give, out of a grateful heart and not a sense of obligation or expectancy or maybe a profit from God, then may the Lord bless you in your giving. And may those who receive your gifts be appreciative of what they have been given. Personally, this is just me. I'd say 10% is a good round number. We make a great deal of money in America. We have a high standard of living, but you should give based on how you are reflecting appreciation to God for the immeasurable gift that is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This attitude is clearly proclaimed throughout scripture as well. So please remember that. Please remember in your giving to have the right heart attitude and to give cheerfully and willingly, not grudgingly, all right? Now we've come to the end of the sermon and I'd ask you to give me a few more minutes to first tell you how you can receive the greatest gift of all if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, why it's necessary and how you can receive it. And then I got a couple more things to read you here. Jesus Christ came as a man and he lived perfectly under the law that we've been talking about, the law that we could never fulfill. And then he gave his life up as a sacrifice for the sins we have committed in our body. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. We die spiritually, When we have sin in our life, it separates us from God. We die physically because of the sin in our life and we will stay in the grave for all eternity. We will never have true life because of the sin in our life. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That means that when we put our hope and our trust in him who has fulfilled the law on our behalf, Then he will grant us his righteousness. And then he was crucified, taking away our sin debt. The sin that, or the anger that God has at our sin was placed on his own son. And he went into the grave, but the grave could not hold him because he had never sinned. And so he came back to life. And that proves to us, because our sin is taken away in him at the cross, that we will also have eternal life because of the merits of Jesus Christ, not because of our own merits. So the Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's all God wants you to do is to just simply by faith, reach out and say, I can't save myself. This sin separates from me. I know this and I want Jesus to cleanse me of my sins. And I want to live eternally in your presence because of the resurrection that came through Jesus Christ. All right, now I have a closing verse for you today. It's from Philippians chapter four. This is Paul being grateful to the Philippians. For the gift that they had sent to him through a person named Epaphroditus. There's what it says Indeed, I have all, and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen wonderful words from Paul you know it's just it's glorious to see how he was taken care of by his congregation and he thanked the Lord for them and for the gift that he had received and may you also be blessed in your giving as well next week we're going to talk about Genesis 29 1 through 14 it's called exile from the land all right and the final thing I have for you today is the poem that I do week after week uh, based on the Verses that we uh, went through in the Bible, and here it is. This is called A Portion Returned. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going for which I have been praying, and give me my bread and clothing from day to day, so that the Lord, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. My devotion will never cease. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, Bethel. And of all that you give me, I won't forget. I will surely give a tenth to you, this I tell. A lesson for us from the Bible's pages is that we are to fulfill the vows we speak. We need to be faithful throughout the ages, performing our vows, even when we feel weak. And also we need to remember how we've been blessed. God has given us so much, let us return some back. He has filled us with food and in good clothes we are dressed. With a willing heart, let us give and not be slack. Lord, help us to live rightly in your eyes and help us to give in a way which will honor you. When you look upon our gifts, may you not despise, but rather honor. our accounts, may our accounts much credit accrue. May our gifts and offerings be abundantly pleasing in your sight. May also our actions be wholesome, holy, and right. O God, be with us throughout all of our days, guiding us with your word, a light for our feet. And may you be glorified through our resounding praise here on this earth or when finally in heaven we meet. Glorious, wonderful God above, thank you for your unending love. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach on this, uh, uh, this subject. And I pray that if there's anybody that's listening today that has been in the bondage of being shamed into giving, that they will be free from that today. And that when they give, it will be with a grateful heart and it will be according to what they believe you have prospered them. And so I would ask that you would prosper them, take good care of them and give them the ability to pay all of their bills, meet all of their needs, and then to give some back to you through whatever ministry you place upon their heart. And Lord God, we thank you above all for the greatest gift of all, the gift of our Lord and Savior and the eternal life that comes through him. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. All glory, all honor, all majesty, all of it belongs to you alone in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.